Hello and welcome. It's the pleasure of Power to Change to present Family Life Today each week, Monday through Friday at this time. We'd love you to contact this station and tell them how much you appreciate hearing Family Life Today. Well, let's get started on today's edition. So i got to ask you, are you excited today? I'm super excited. Why is that? Because we have someone with us today that we have been a fan of for a long time, and I think... We're not fans of very many people, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You know. But I think the reason I appreciate this man so much is because I know the struggle you have had intellectually, apologetically, in the Christian faith and your doubts, and this man really impacted you. Yeah, we have Philip Yancey in the studio with us today. Welcome to Family Life, Philip. Thank you so much. And, I, you know, you don't know this about us and about me, but I came across Disappointment with God, your book in 1980. What was it? I think in 89 or 90 it was published. Yeah, you don't yeah. even know how huh? you've got so many books out there. <laughs> right. But I came across Disappointment with God early in my Christian faith. I didn't come to Christ till my junior year in college. Hmm. And I had never read a Christian author who had the guts to ask hard questions, doubts, questions, struggles, I thought I did not fit. Mm-hmm. I don't fit in Christianity. I don't fit in the church. Everybody there has all the answers. They're smiling all the time. They don't struggle. Nobody would ever talk about struggle. So disappointment with God, I think, saved my faith. Mm-hmm. It really did. I'm so glad to hear that, Dave, because I I had a debate with the publisher on that title. Really? Yeah, this was back in the late 80s, and they said, people don't have books like that in Christian bookstores. They're all about (laughs) the Christian secret to a happy life and finding more fulfillment and abundant living and all that. And why don't you change it to something like how I overcame disappointment with God? Mm. And I said, those kind of people don't need a book. (laughs) (laughs) I want to reach people who are in the middle of it because I'm in the middle of it. I've... I've had the the privilege as an author just to tell it like it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in a church that did not do that. Mm-hmm. I've been in recovery from it for a long time. So I made a decision when I started writing that I just have to be honest. And lo and behold, the more I read the Bible, the more I, I realized that's the most honest book I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> The, the greatest heroes, the giants of the Bible, are people like Moses, who was a murderer, David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, Peter, who betrayed Jesus just like Judas did almost, and Saul of Tarsus, who made his living persecuting Christians. These are the, these are the cream of the crop. These are the giants. <laughs> and, they, and they would all be canceled today. They would. I mean, you think about that. They would be canceled. You, you wouldn't listen to anything they have to say. I'm excited because your latest book... And it just came out, Where the Light Fell, which is your memoir right? about your life. And I had no idea. As we picked it up and started to read it, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Hmm. So much of what you write about is in your story. So today we get to talk about that. Hmm. Um, why now? Why this book? My wife calls it a prequel. She says uh, this explains why hmm. yeah. Philip yeah. Uh, ends up where he did. And uh why he's obsessed, I think that's the word she uses, with topics like suffering, pain, and grace. You know, those are the two themes that I keep circling around. And and I think she's right. I look back on my life, and I had a lot of suffering growing up and a lot of joy after that. But I I had never really metabolized that those early times. You've had a lot of guests. I'm sure you've had guests who talk about uh, being saved from alcohol, from drugs, from pornography, from whatever. And 
my story is that I was saved from the church. <laughs> I was, I grew up in one of these real right wing, uh, legalistic, angry, racist, in, in fact, churches in the South. And it was a nurturing community in some ways, but in other ways, it, it really misrepresented God to me. And I emerged from that with this image of God as this scowling, monster in the sky just waiting to find somebody who might be having a good time so he could crush them. And it takes a long time to overcome something like that. And I've been blessed to realize not only did I see the worst of the church, I eventually saw the best of the church. And to put that together, to try to filter out what is worth keeping and what should I discard, that's that, that's what my books are about. Hmm. They're all idea-driven books. This is a different kind of book. It's a story book. It's the story of my life, especially the early life. It was revealing to me, too. <laughs> I had never written a book like that before. And I think in the book I, I mentioned it somewhat like putting together a jigsaw puzzle with all the pieces of my life, but I didn't know how they fit together. And I had no picture on the frame, uh, on the box, to tell me what I was putting together, not until I finished did I realize, aha, that's why I write about pain. That's why I write about grace. Hmm. It's sad to see Jesus or the church represented in such a way that has caused you so much pain. And so I was really thrilled that you would write and share that with us. Just to say that he's bigger than that. Jesus kind of rescued you from all of this. So take us back about your parents. Mm -hmm. um, you never even knew your dad. I did not. I was one year old when my little family's life changed forever. My parents were planning to be missionaries in Africa. They had already solicited supporters, and they had as many as 5,000 people who were committed to pray for them and to give them money. And they were in the process of getting ready to go to Africa. I was just about at the age where they thought, okay, now we can leave. And then one day my father woke up and he couldn't move couldn't move his arms, legs. They rushed him to a hospital, and he had polio. You talk about pandemics. We've been through a pandemic recently, and that was a fearful pandemic back mm -hmm. in the 1950s and 40s. My father was unable even to breathe on his own, so he was put in an iron lung in a charity hospital in Atlanta. My mother was very faithful. She would leave us with neighbors and then spend all day right beside the iron lung. And they both decided, this is no life for us. Surely that can't be what God had in mind. And some other people in their church said, yeah, you're right. I think maybe God wants, uh, Marshall was his name, to be healed. And so they got together and prayed, and then finally they decided, that's right. God surely wouldn't choose for someone to die compared to going to be a missionary in Africa at the age of 23. So they removed him against all medical advice from the iron lung. And I didn't know this part of the story until I was about 18 years old. I found a clipping from the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, and it told the story, and it was written while he was taken out of the hospital, and he started to show possible signs of improvement. He thought he could wiggle a toe that he hadn't been able to wiggle. And they talked about this great act of faith, believing that God would heal him story I'd never heard. And I looked at the date of the paper, and it was nine days before he died. Mm. And I realized, whoa, I've been living under 
a shadow <laughs> that traces back to that event. And it was kept from me. It was a secret. I knew that he died of polio, of course, but I didn't know that story of people who took a gamble of faith, a leap of faith, and they were wrong. And I look back on it, and these are not people who opposed him or were against him in any way. They loved him, supported him. But they did something that we don't really have the right to do. And I've, I've learned that some people, I guess I'd put it this way, not everyone who claims to speak for God actually does so. These people were sincere. They believed in faith that he would be healed. But that's really God's prerogative, uh, not ours. We can ask, certainly, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it's it's up to God. And I learned that uh, that truth that some people claim to speak to God worked out in all sorts of ways in the church I went to. Uh, I mentioned the racism of that church, which would turn people down at the door. They wouldn't allow people of color even to enter the church, much less join it. And wrong about some other things, wrong about the image of God that I went away with. So all my other books, those 20, 25 books, all of them are really my way of sorting out, okay, what is the truth here? How can I find the truth? Hmm. It's almost like, you know, as I read your book, here's one of my thoughts. I thought, wow, Philip Yancey went through a deconstruction yeah. <laughs> of his faith before there was a term called deconstruction. Right, right. And you just explained it. What do I keep? What do I lose? I mean, now that's pretty commonplace. I mean, a lot of our kids, you know, I, I, we just did – some shows with John Marriott. He did his PhD dissertation on deconstruction, deconversion. Huh. And he said 80% of our kids are in the church, in high school, go to college and leave. You 80%. know, leave the faith. So uh. they, they deconstruct. They don't keep anything. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that deconstruction thing, but you're right. And people are going through it. And frankly, I feel blessed because mm. I've been able to make my living at deconstructing. You know, we all have these questions. But most people have jobs, you know, <laughs> and my job is to ask these questions, you know. So for some 40 years, I can pick a topic and just like the Jesus I never knew that been what's amazing about grace. Why did I write those books? Well, because the Jesus I now know is very different from the Jesus I was taught as a kid. And in my case, I had experienced a lot of ungrace, ungrace in the family, ungrace in the church. When I tasted that first gulp of what God's grace was, that God wasn't this monster in the sky. God was a passionate, loving, divine presence who, who wanted me to feel no longer fatherless, who wanted to adopt me. It changed everything. Grace is amazing. And as a journalist, I've had the privilege of going around and interviewing people whose lives have been transformed by grace. And in this book, I, I got to look at my own life and say, well, how did that happen? What happened? And in, in my case, it was God choosing me, not me choosing God. God mm -hmm. met me at a time when I was when I was cynical and, and hardened and resistant at a Bible college, a place I didn't want to be. There would be faculty meetings on, should we kick Philip out of the school <laughs> this week or next week? You know, <laughs> should we give him one more week? And I just loved kind of flaunting it. I mean, it wasn't because you weren't intelligent and smart. It was a resistance to the right. religion would, part I of it. I would sit out in the in the patio and uh, read books like uh, Why I Am Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. And, 
instead of uh, Andrew Murray, you know, and people like that. So I was obnoxious, and uh, it was a defensive shell against what I experienced from the church so far. And we had to have a Christian service at the time. So I went to, I signed up for what I thought was the coolest Christian service, and that was university work. There was a university nearby, and we would go. And we were supposed to witness and have evangelistic conversations with people, but I would sit in the student center and watch basketball games. There were no TVs <laughs> on my campus. This is great. And then I would kind of make up stories about conversations that I had, embellished. And we always had a prayer meeting. There were, I think, four of us. And we were in a dorm one evening. And Joe would pray, and then Chris would pray, and whoever else was there on the team would pray. And they would pause politely for a few seconds. And, of course, I never prayed. And I don't know what happened, but... Uh, you never prayed. I never prayed. Hmm. But here I am in this room, and for some reason I started praying. I just said, God, and everybody kind of got tense, like electrical charge hit the room <laughs> or something. And and I said, we're supposed to care about these 10,000 students at this university and try to keep them from going to hell. But I don't care if they all go to hell. I don't care if I go to hell. And And I had a... I, I guess I'd have to call it a vision. I wasn't asleep. It wasn't a dream. But I started talking aloud about the story of the Good Samaritan. And what I said was, here we're supposed to care for these people like the Good Samaritan cared for this tramp lying in a ditch covered with blood. And as I said that, that vision flipped in my mind. And I looked at the figure leaning down and it wasn't the Good Samaritan, it was Jesus. And I looked at the figure in the ditch, and it wasn't a tramp who'd been robbed, it was me. I mean, I, I saw that. It was, it was in my visual screen. And I, I didn't know what to do. And I, I just kind of closed the prayer quickly and went away. I just left the room, shutting the door behind me. And it just rattled me. Where did that come from? Where did that come mm -hmm. from? And I realized that was the truth, that God was reaching down, trying to heal me, my wounds. And every time he did, I would spit in his face. And I actually did that in, in the vision I had just seen. Jesus would lean down and I would spit in his face. And he'd lean down again and I'd spit in his face. Hmm. And I realized I was the neediest person on that campus. Hmm. I had a girlfriend at the time. I wrote her a note that night and I said, I may have had the only authentic religious experience in my life. And I had gone forward 20 times, given my testimony hundreds of times. You know, you do that when you grow up in a church environment. Mm. But none of them were really felt authentic. And that changed everything for me. I mean, people ask me, with all the church abuse that you suffered, how can one experience like that change everything? Well, that's like asking uh, Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> you know? so, why did you turn from a Christian persecutor to a to a missionary, Christian missionary? Well, when you've had an experience like that, and I, you know, I got to say, I've waited to tell that story in detail for for my whole writing career because as soon as you tell a story like that, people will say, "Well, that never happened to me. I didn't have one of those experiences." Right, and, right, and, and they're right.
Mm. God deals with us in different ways, but God knew that I needed that. It was something that I didn't manufacture. I wasn't even seeking. And, and God reached down in an act of great grace and mercy and said, I can work with you. Mm. The name of the book that we're talking about is Where the Light Fell. That title comes from a quote by St. Augustine who said, I couldn't look at the sun directly, but I could look on the rays where the light fell. And that's how I felt. I, I couldn't look at the sun directly. I'd been scorched. You know, my image of God was stained and I couldn't look. I didn't want to look. And as I tell in the book, there are three things that softened me up. The beauties of nature I, that was my place, my go to place in a difficult childhood. Just take walks in the wood, collect butterflies, all that kind of stuff. Have a dog. <laughs> so nature and classical music. Uh, my brother was a, an amazingly gifted musician. I wasn't. I liked the classical music and could make a little of it. And then romantic love. And those three things, I think, were God's way of softening me. And, and that softening process, um, you know, when you're in love, there's nothing like it. <laughs> this is my first real love. And and I would just wander around in the woods and just marvel at the beauty of what's going on. Yet I couldn't quite make that connection to God because my image of God had been so stained. But I felt that longing, that desire to thank someone. And then I realized if if God is responsible for this world, for the beauties, the joys, the, the peak experiences we have, love, those things, that's a different kind of God than I was taught, that scowling, distant, angry presence. And I, I need to know more of that God, but I didn't know how to do that. And, and then the vision came. What would you say to the person that has that vision of God that I had it too, hmm. like you? I got that from my church or wherever. I'm not blaming them, but I had that vision. How do you change that? If there's a mom or a dad listening or a son or daughter right now, it's like, that's that's sort of how I see God. How do I get to where Philip is? What would you say? Well, I'll just tell you how it happened for me. It only takes one person, Dave. It really does. And I had seen some of the worst that the church has to offer. And then I I found a church that was there was a beautiful church in Chicago. And then I found a man, uh, Dr. Paul Brand. I've written three different books with him, so I spent 10 years with him. I'm a journalist, so I spent my life uh, interviewing people and being, finding famous people and trying to figure out what makes them tick. You know, I've interviewed a couple U.S. presidents and scientists and very impressive people. But no one more impressive than Dr. Paul Brand he was a scientist. He was also a physician. He worked with the lowest people on the entire planet. There, I guarantee you there's nobody farther down the social ladder than somebody in India in the untouchable caste now called Dalits who has leprosy. That's it. That's the bottom. And here was this brilliant man who had been offered, would you be head of orthopedics at Stanford or at Oxford University, and turned them both down to work among those people the lowest people on the planet. And yet I had never met anyone more full of joy, more fully alive, more. He knew every bird, every butterfly, every plant. He just was fully alive. And so I spent 10 years writing his his thoughts. And that was a period when my faith healed. 
I, I probably couldn't have written about what I believed at the time because I had no idea. But I could write with integrity about what Dr. Brand believed because he lived it out. He proved it to me. And I would say to a person with that view of God, find somebody you most want to be like <clears throat> and follow them around and figure out what their secret is. The author David Brooks talks about the difference between resume virtues and legacy virtues. Resume virtues are what we're good at in America. Hmm. How much money do you have? How many boards did you serve on? Where did you go to school? What kind of car did you drive? You know, we we spend so much energy competing in that. The funny thing is when a person dies, nobody stands up and, and says, he had the foresight to buy Microsoft at, at 100, you know. <laughs> they talk about he was a good man. He was charitable. He was generous. He he cared for children. And we, we kind of inherently know that's what we should be like. And that's just a, an image of any sliver like that is, is part of the image of God in us. Hmm. And I think if we... If we find those people, what is their secret? In my life as a journalist, there are people who become deep followers of Jesus. They want to be like Jesus. And I eventually came around to that. But it, it takes some time because, as you say, the church is not always holding up those qualities. Often it holds up almost the reverse. Dave and Ann Wilson and their team for another edition of Family Life Today. Although our programs are produced in America, the issues facing families like forgiveness, communication and taking care of our kids transcend national borders. These issues profoundly affect relationships everywhere. In Australia, family life is known as power to change and our mission is to effectively develop godly families the kind of families that change the world one home at a time. A key part of our mission includes strengthening marriages and families all around the world. We want to do whatever we can to bring timeless truths to the challenges you face as you seek to strengthen your family and join us in changing the world. Does your marriage need a tune-up or perhaps a bit of an overhaul? Come to A Day Together, our one-day marriage conference that focuses on helping couples develop oneness in their marriage. For a list of dates and locations near you, see our website at families.powertochange.org.au. Until tomorrow, God's blessings. Music.